today, last part of Exodus. It's been a few months that we've been in it, and you've probably noticed the book of Exodus is pretty long. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 40 today. Um, there's a lot that happens in the books as we've gone through, uh, as we've gone through it. And so it can be difficult to work out and keep track of like what is actually going on, what is the, the bigger narrative of this book, all of that sort of stuff. And so to try and keep things simple, we've used this phrase throughout the series of he draws us out to draw us in, kind of the summary of the whole book of Exodus, these two movements of God really, that he draws out his people so that he can draw them in. And we've seen what it means for us to be drawn out in the beginning half of the book, uh, how he rescues his people from slavery, he sets them free, draws us out of sin and death. And then he doesn't just leave us there. That's not his entire work of salvation. But then he looks to draw his people in. And that's what we've been looking at in the second half of the book. All of the stuff recently of meeting God at the mountain and the law that he gives his people and then forms it into a covenant for his people. And what I want to do today really is for us to get crystal clear on what is this life that God draws us into. And so, as I said, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 40, so grab your Bible. If you've got it, that's 4-0, um, and we're going to read from the end of verse 16, uh, from 16, sorry, through to the end of the book. Um, and so here, Moses is setting up what is called the tabernacle. If you're new to the idea of that, basically a giant tent, as you shall see. Um, so we're going to read a chunk of verses from verse 16. The words will appear on the, behind me if you don't have a Bible. You can read there. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses." He put the golden altar on the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. You might be spotting a little bit of a pattern. We'll get to that. He put it in place. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered it on the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put the water on it for washing, with which Mo Moses and Aaron, his sons, washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. And you might be thinking, finally. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, as we've seen throughout this uh, book of Exodus, it has got everything that you would need for an epic adventure. We've had evil villains, we've had a world shaking through the plagues, we've had seas being parted in two, we've even had moments where bread has rained down from heaven. We've had supernatural encounters on a mountain. And so then as the narrative comes to an end, you might be thinking, okay, it's coming to a close. Surely we're just going to have one final flurry of action and excitement. Like surely it's going to kick off again. Maybe like some sweeping battle scene or like a dragon will appear or something and Moses is going to have to like, go, like throw down with the dragon. Instead... As we begin this final chapter, the image that we are greeted with is man pitches tent. The most domestic of jobs. And not just pitching a tent, but as we have just read, pitching a tent with a lot of detail. Like the pillars and the veils and the poles and the frame and the tables and like the, the careful maneuvering into exactly the right place. You read it and you think, Okay, like, I've got it. You're making a tent. And it, but if you're familiar with Exodus, you know, this is not just these 18 verses. Oh, no. The construction of this tabernacle gets some build-up. I think for most of us, as modern readers of the Bible, I think reading the account of the tabernacle is, is maybe what we find hardest about reading the book of Exodus. Thirteen chapters of collecting of materials, crafting, consecrating, so much detail, so much repetition. It's just after all that's gone on before, you get to this and it just seems to suck the life out of the book. And you just come and you think, I just want this book to end. But God is doing something beautiful in the tabernacle and profound that I want to help us see today. I want us to see why the tabernacle is so important. I cannot promise you that next time you come to read through it for yourself, you won't just need a few cups of coffee on standby to get through it. But what I am hoping is that even when you're amongst perhaps the weeds of the embroidery of the curtains or what have you, you'll be able to have in mind some of the wonder of what it is that God is really building here, how he is using it to reveal his relationship to his creation and how this tent, this fairly ordinary, everyday kind of object, a man-made thing, actually gives us this stunning picture of who we are and how we can understand ourselves. So that's where we're headed. And it's in this almost unmissable phrase that we have as we go through it in this account of it being set up that we start to see some of this come through. Unmissable because, as you will have noticed as we went through, you hear this phrase repeated so much, as the Lord commanded Moses. Eight times we heard that in that, that reading that we went through. He brought the ark in as the Lord commanded Moses. We set up the table as the Lord commanded Moses. Burned incense as the Lord commanded Moses. It's kind of rhythmic and metronomic in its feel. And in fact, that's very much what it is. You might see there, every two verses. So kind of a very, with a lot of regularity, it's happening. Now remember, when these verses, when the original audience engaged with this, they were not reading it, they were in an oral culture, so they heard it. And so if you're an author, if you want your audience to be able to remember something that is going on, you repeat it a lot. 
So Moses, the author, is giving this drumbeat as the Lord commanded Moses. He just wants it to get into them that this, what is going on here, if you know one thing about the tabernacle, is that Mo, uh, God is at work. God is authoring and orchestrating this. You might be seeing Moses being the one putting up the poles and pulling the canvas over and inevitably hitting his hand with a mallet. It's just like always happens when you're putting a tent up. Is it just me? Or universal experience, I hope. But as this thing comes into existence, the text wants us to be clear, God is the one making this happen. And he's making it happen by speaking, as the Lord commanded Moses. So you've got this dynamic going on of God speaking and then something new coming into existence. Might start to be kind of triggering a few like, oh, that sounds a bit familiar. Just like at the beginning, he speaks and something new is made. This is the key to understanding all that God is doing in the tabernacle. If you just know one thing about the tabernacle, if you just go home with one like, fact about the tabernacle in your mind, is that it's this. God is creating again. He's making something new. Throughout, as we go through the, building, the account of the building of the tabernacle, there's parallels with the original creation story woven all the way through it. As God makes the heavens and the earth, right in the beginning in, in chapter 1, let's just look at a few of these, these parallels. In creation, at the beginning of chapter, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 3, the famous line, it begins with, And God said, Let there be light. And then as you go through chapter 1 of Genesis, you see these, uh, set, repeated, that repeated phrase, And God said seven times as God makes the cosmos and then the world and then the Garden of Eden for mankind to inhabit. And then likewise, when we then look at the tabernacle, we start first, the, the very beginning words in chapter 25, where it all begins, the Lord said. That's how it starts. And then throughout those chapters, it repeats to a total of seven times, the Lord said, the Lord said, the Lord said. And then as we see how the tabernacle is designed, we see it closely follows and mirrors the blueprint of the Garden of Eden. We read the tabernacle is to be decorated and adorned with wooden carvings, intentionally trying to give it this feel of being in a garden. And then it's to have this lamp that's of real importance. And this lamp is shaped like a tree. It's got branches and buds and flowers and blossoms echoing the tree of life that took center stage in the Garden of Eden, right there in the middle. And when it's put up, the tabernacle is to face east, just like matching the Garden of Eden, which also faced eastward. And inside it, there are to be these lamps that, again, are of real importance, shining down, designed to be like the lamps that they see in the skies above, the sun, the moon, and the stars in creation. In its design, everything about the tabernacle is screaming creation all over again. And then as creation wraps up in the beginning of Genesis 2, it says, the heavens and the earth were finished. And then as Moses finishes building the tabernacle in our passage, it says, so Moses finished the work. Exactly the same word in the Hebrew. Now this tent is going up thousands of years after this initial creation, thousands of years after the fall 
That moment where man and woman were sent out, they, they, they fell from grace, they fell from God, that sin entered into the world and so then corrupted not only the relationship between man and God, but corrupted, corrupted creation itself, fracturing and breaking it and severing the relationship between man and God. Like the dramatic moment right at the beginning of the Bible that now for the thousands of years, ever since up to this moment, this question has just been looming and hanging over the whole of humanity. That with that chasm that sin has opened up between God and man, with the brokenness of creation, how is it that man and God will ever get to have meaningful relationship again? How can they ever be connected? And here, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, somewhere now in modern-day Egypt, in the middle of this dusty wilderness, we are starting to see God's response. He's saying to his people, you can't come into Eden. And so, I'm going to bring Eden back to you. He says, I'm going to make right in the midst of my people, in that broken and fractured and corrupt world, I am going to make a new, in miniature form, covered by a tent, housed in a tent, I'm going to make that garden all over again. I'm going to make this unique, precious place where heaven and earth come together as one. This, this space, this one place that has ever existed, this one unique dwelling place for God and man to be together, that they can call home together, this place that was lost seemingly forever, is beginning to be restored in the tabernacle. What we are seeing here is God's, it's just a stunning picture of God's deep commitment to his creation. God loves what he has made. When he sees it broken, when he sees it not quite as it should be, not quite functioning as it should be, he doesn't just kind of gradually back away and look at it and think, oh my gosh, what is going on there? I'll just leave that there for a bit. Or just turn away in negligence. No, when God sees the brokenness of creation, he moves towards it. He sees it and he's drawn in by compassion. And by his word, what he does is he starts to take all of these bits that are broken, gathering up in the tabernacle, the gold and the, the onyx stones and the goat skin, all these bits and pieces from a broken world. And as he speaks, the words from his mouth start to breathe it back and it begins to reflect some of the glory and the wonder of heaven once again. The God of creation here in the tabernacle, he's also showing us he is the God of recreation. That he is a rebuilder. He renews. I think we were singing that line over and over earlier, that he renews. He's come to renew us. He's come to restore. He's come to revive. This is what we see him doing in the person of Jesus Christ when he comes to the world. He's not repelled by what he sees in creation, not thinking, oh, I'm not getting involved in that. When he sees the corruptness and brokenness of the world below, he's drawn in and he enters right in, coming and saying, I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. He comes moving around Galilee and Jerusalem and he's drawn into the most broken people. 
and he brings the life of his kingdom. The blind start seeing, the lame start walking, the dead start living as he comes. Restoring, rebuilding, reviving. Promising right at the end of the Bible, behold, in Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. All things. This is just what he does. He makes all things new. He speaks these words to the highest of mountains. He speaks it to the furthest reaches of the cosmos. And he speaks these words into every hurting heart here this morning that he makes all things new. To those of you this morning that feel like I'm just a collection of broken pieces at the moment, that maybe your soul feels like it has just been ripped apart by grief, he says to you, I will mend you and I'll heal you. To those who feel like their dignity Self-worth has just been snatched and stolen from them from years of abuse and broken and harmful relationships. He says to you, I will restore you, I will rebuild you. To every spirit that is here that is weary, discouraged, like we're only one month in and 2023 has already been a hard year for you. He speaks to you and he says, I will revive you. This is who he is. He's not just creator, he is recreator, restorer. That is what he's communicating to us in the tabernacle. The God who makes new, the God who restores. The God who restores so he can come and fill. As this garden is made on earth once again, as this tabernacle comes into being, it's a place for him to come and be with his people. And God enters in, in these dramatic verses from verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And you know, actually, I think something here in the English, we miss something of what is going on in our translations. In my Bible, I don't know if it's the same for you, it's probably similar. I've got between verses 33 and verses 34. So 33, where it says, Moses finished the work, and then verse 34 then the cloud covered the tent. I've got a full stop. I've got a paragraph break. I've got a bit of a gap. I've got a new heading. All of these things that make you think, oh, this is a bit of a different moment. Like things are moving on. It's a bit of a different thought. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a new thing. In the Hebrew, the original language, not so much. In the Hebrew, this is just one continuous flow. Actually, the word then that begins our verse 34 is actually added into the English. It's not in the Hebrew. And so in the original language, you actually get a sense more of, so Moses finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. It's just like happens and continues straight on. And what you get in the Hebrew, the original language, is this kind of promptness from God. He's just like ready. God cannot wait to get in there. It's like he's watching Moses and he's like just watching him get the whole thing together. It's like, okay, the table goes over there. The table, yeah, just a little bit to the left, a little bit to the left. Perfect. Okay, the veil, the veil. Moses, where are you going, Moses? Not over there, Moses. No, 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 that's right. Yeah, 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 a bit closer, a bit closer there. And then here comes the screen. And God's like, this is the last bit. I know. 
And the screen's coming in, and it's a perfect design. Moses is following all the instructions. God is just like, here it comes, here it comes. And just as Moses is getting the like, perfect place, he's just getting it in the right place, millimeter perfect, God just jumps on it. He's like, I'm right in. I'm getting in there. He's, there's an eagerness from God in this. Like the moment that this tabernacle's finished, God's like, right, in I go. I want to be down there. I want to be with my people. I want to be in this thing that I have asked for and that Moses has made for me. I want to be with my people. It delights him to come and be with his people. Now, be honest. Is that how you think about God? Is that how you think that he, his posture towards us is like eager. I want to be with you. That he's eager to fulfill his covenant promises. Eager to do all that he said he would do. I think often we can view God as actively trying to avoid us. That he would like almost want to do anything but hang out with us and be with us. That he does his best to try and keep his distance from us. That we can think God is probably at his most happy in heaven, like hanging out as Father, Son, and Spirit. And then like maybe at a stretch, the Apostle Paul gets invited in. Peter can come and be part of things. Like maybe some of the titans of church history get the invite. But like that guy down in Manchester who has mood swings and struggles to get out of bed in the morning. And like always forgets to pray. That God's just like, no, thank you. That is not our God. Our God is eager to be with us. The moment that he can get in with these people, he is in. To these people, these people who have just rebelled against him in the worst way that they could have. They've just broken covenant with him. He's like, I want to be with them. Honestly, even now, right now, He's eager to be with you. However you have shown up this morning, you might have had a week of just rebelling against God. You might have come in here this morning and the guilt and the shame of the last week has just followed you in. Hear it right now. He is eager to be with you. Eager to be with us this morning. And not eager to just give a little bit of himself, sort of present. He wants to be all in with his people. Verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then again, verse 35, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What we're seeing here is all of those moments of of God's presence that we've seen on the mountain that kind of show his maximum presence among his people, the thick cloud of his presence, the fire in verse 38. These are God's presence being at its max. And now here, as he comes to inhabit this Eden in miniature, things turn up even another notch. Verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now by this point, Moses is pretty well acquainted with being in the presence of God, of entering in, of knowing what that's like, and having an expectation. When I come, I'm coming in. But this time, he's just like, it goes to go in. It's like, boom, just can't. It's just a hard no for Moses in that moment. Because the presence of God is there in a way he's not yet 
seen. As God enters into the tabernacle to come and be with his people, it's just the presence is there, so thick, so weighty. Even a seasoned veteran like Moses, like God's favored man, used to coming in and out, he just can't get in there. This is the eagerness of God to come and be with his people in a way that they have not known before. And this is the posture of God that we have seen all through the book of Exodus. I mean, if you wanted to summarize the book of Exodus in just a few words, you could maybe just go with, like, God is keen for his people. Or zealous, you know, if you wanted a word that seemed a bit more Bible. But I like keen. God is eager to be with his people. At the beginning, it's him that initiates this relationship. He turns up in a burning bush before Moses, like, I want to be noticed. I want you to see me. He, it's God that then says, that I want you to be my people, and I want to be your God. Just like on the table, this is what I want this relationship to look like. It's God who will not take no for an answer, sending plague after plague after plague after plague after plague after plague to get hold of his people and set his people free. It's God who will not allow a massive expanse of water to keep his people from being able to come to him. God is not like us when it comes to starting a new relationship. Where we overanalyze and overthink every interaction and text message we send. They're like, I want to seem interested. I don't want to seem too interested. I don't want to seem too keen. I don't want to come on too strong. God is like, no, I am putting everything on the table. I am letting these people know I want this relationship to happen. If it was anyone else but God, we'd be just sort of like taking him aside, a little bit of pastoral conversation. Like, come on, bro. Like, a few boundaries here, maybe. But he just wants this to happen. This pursuit of his people leading up to this moment where he can rush all the way in and be with his people in a thick way. Notice this is no longer an invitation up the mountain. No longer God saying, come and meet me halfway. You come up to me. This is now God doing all of the legwork. I am coming to you. And he moves into a tent. The home that God has made for himself is this portable home. This place where this is now an Eden that can move with them. God doesn't want any separation at any point from his people. He's like, wherever I want to be in union and relationship and united to you. We see that in the final verse. It says, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This visible recognizable, felt presence of God with them in the sight of all the house throughout all their journey. From just a few people getting to enjoy God's presence, having moments and occasions with God, to all of the people with God all of the time in this thick, weighty glory. This is what he's drawing them into. This is the life that he wants for them. This whole life lived in the presence of God. Like every moment, every step they take, everywhere that they go, knowing 
that God is with us. He is present among us. Our life is centered around this presence of our God around us. And as if, if the beginning of this final chapter seems a little bit anticlimactic to us, it's like man builds tent. The very end is anything but. These people are about to live day by day with this God of the Exodus that we have been looking at. This God of the burning bush, this consuming God, this Yahweh, holy God, the one that orchestrated all of the plagues, the God who shook the mountain, the God, the I am who I am, the way he spoke of himself, revealing I am nothing like you. And they're not just going to know him, not just going to understand him, not just going to offer worship to him, but they are going to live daily with this awesome incomparable God in their midst. I mean, for anybody that's just read through the narrative of Exodus, you are left ending on this tantalizing prospect. Like, what does this life look like with this God? All of life that close to that God. Well, the thing is, we know. We know what life is like with this God. With this God of the Exodus, the I am who I am, dwelling among us. Our story, if you know Jesus, is the book of the Exodus. We were helpless, we were lost, we were enslaved, and we desperately needed a saviour, and God saw us in our need, and in Christ he came. He came and he found us, he defeated our enemy, he set us free, he has defeated the dragon, and he's drawn us out of bondage and sin and slavery And he's drawn us to him in new life with him. This is our story. But here's the bit that's different. And this is wild. This should blow our minds. We all engaged. Because in this new life that we now have, we don't just have a tabernacle. We are the tabernacle. The tabernacle, God's communicating God's deep commitment to recreating the world, making new again, making a a dwelling for his people. This work God now continues today in his people through his spirit. This is Paul in the New Testament. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Now, we do not have time to get into everything that Paul is saying there, but notice our relationship there to the new creation. We are not headed towards a new creation. That is true, but that's not what Paul's saying here. It's not that he's saying you will one day become a new creation. Again, true, but not what he's saying here. Not that we have tasted something of the new creation. He's saying you are now a new creation. Just as he spoke the tabernacle into newness in the midst of a broken world, a unique place where he could come and dwell and take up his home. Now he does the same with us today. He makes us new. Do you know this? Do you know that when you became a Christian, it's not just that you started to change your beliefs a little bit, started coming to church, singing a few different songs, hanging out with a few different people, bit of a worldview shift, like behavioral changes. No, he spoke into your soul and he made you 
new. He recreates us and speaks what is dead into life again so that he can come and take up his home. Paul again in verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do you not know? I love how he starts that. Paul's just saying, do not miss this. This is fundamental to your understanding of who you are. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that you are God's temple? This temple replaced the tabernacle, performed exactly the same function. So very much analogous here. This place that is made specifically for God to come and dwell, for God to come and fill, for God to come and be most present. What Paul is saying here is, all right, you want to know where all of this, all of this stuff is now happening? Where is this holy cloud? Where is the glory that fills the tabernacle? Where is his presence so weighty and so thick? Where is the fire and the, the, the where do we witness the power of God most on display? He says, all of that is now happening inside of each and every one of us. Each of us that has a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike the people of God here, it's not that God is nearby. It's not just that we're in the same camp as God. It's not just that we're sharing the same postcode with God, but that in Christ we now have been completely made new, cleansed by his blood, made holy by him, so that the Spirit of God can then rush to us, just like he did in the temple, in the tabernacle, just as when we were made new by Jesus, the moment we were, that he could rush right in and fill us up with his presence, this same presence that we see here, to be bound with us, so close to us, that it's not just now, but it's for eternity. Isn't this outrageous that he would come to us and make us his home? To be with us in all of our journeys. That if you ever doubt, if you ever question, does God really want me? Does he, is he for me? Does he love me? Does he like me? Know this. He made you new so that he could rush to you with the fullness of his presence and make you his home. Not to just be sort of sort of present, but for each and every one of us to fill us, to fill us with his glory. There's no outsiders, no hierarchy, no terms and conditions, no caveats. Each and every person, if you know Jesus, is filled with the full measure of what God has for us. This is fundamental to our own self-understanding and our understanding of what church is. Each of us can have as much of God as anyone else. The moment we come into relationship with him, he gives us as much of his presence, as much of his power as the person sat next to you. There is now no Moseses here. There's no one that is especially favored by God. There's no one that is filled with something that someone else has or, or, or that no one else has. There's no one is given greater access. All of us now receive this full measure of God filling us up. Far more than these people or any more of their ancestors. We, the church today, we are a people defined by, made to be people of the presence of God. 
people of the Spirit of God, people who know the closeness with the Spirit, live all of our lives walking by the power and the presence of His Spirit. This is not some extra bolt-on to Christianity. This is not some incidental part of our salvation. This is the heart of what it means to know Him, to have all of our lives fueled by the empowering presence of God. There's so much that could be said on what that actually looks like to live like it, but at its heart is is intimacy with God, this personal relationship with a personal God. We read in in chapter 33 that Moses was with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is what he is keen for. This is what he longs for this personal, intimate connection with us, for us to know him and to be known by him. And so I'd love for us to finish. Could we just have the band? By us just finishing our time and finishing our series of seeing this is the life that he has drawn them into that we now enter into in a whole, whole new way. Life in the presence of God. Can I just invite you to stand?